Well, happy resurrection morning to you all. It is good to see you. Good morning. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27. We will be bouncing between the gospel accounts this morning. That last song that we just sang, I kind of felt like, you know what, let's say amen, and uh, we, we celebrate the great theological truths that are found there. I remember when I first heard that song, <clears throat> and uh, it was right at the start of COVID, and churches were beginning to lock down, and you had all of the things that we had throughout COVID begin to happen. That song kind of became that theme for me as a pastor and the busyness of that time where my flock had been scattered through technology was my only access to all of them. And this song just kind of resonated in my soul, reminding us that God is truly faithful, that none are like Him, no others compare. Can you imagine the morning the resurrection, all the feelings that I had at the beginning of COVID. Can you imagine the morning, the resurrection, as the women would make their way to the tomb? Twilights hadn't even begun to peak. The first beams of sun had not yet begun to crest. As all the question marks, the busyness, the hecticness, the loss all settled on these women making their way to the tomb. Of the resurrection, one author wrote, the resurrection of Christ was a divine stamp of approval on the atonement he purchased through his dying. Paul wrote that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead in Romans 1.4. The resurrection, the author continues, the resurrection therefore gave immediate dramatic, and tangible proof of the efficacy of Christ's atoning death. The conversion is true, or the converse rather, is true as well. It is the cross and what Jesus accomplished there that gives the resurrection its significance. This morning, the title of our message is Hallelujah, What a Savior. All of the range of emotions that we're going to go through and have been through that we see the women go through on that morning, the resurrection, we will experience with them along the way. The idea that we focus on this morning is the question. It is a question we've been asking all through this Easter season, this resurrection season, as we go back to Palm Sunday, and we ask the questions about Christ. Who do you say Christ is? And why does it matter what do you say about the triumphal entry and why does it matter? We continue in that theme. What do you say about the empty tomb of Jesus and why does it matter? All of these questions are important for us. Whether you know Christ or you do not know Christ, you will give an eternal answer for those questions. And so we dig in now. We're going to start where we left off on Good Friday. There was a series of statements of Christ. There are seven of them that we find in the pages of Scripture. These last statements of Christ while He's on the cross, we're taking the time to look at four of them total, and really almost a fifth one as well, although we won't dwell on it very long. But we're going to dig in, and we're going to start here 
in Matthew chapter 27, but as we do so, let us ask the Lord's blessing on our time in His Word. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we bow our heads this morning because we have asked the questions, who is Jesus? Why does it matter? What is the triumphal entry and why does it matter? This morning we seek to answer now in the third set of those questions. What about the empty tomb and why does it matter? Lord, we know that we live in an age where society is at least declaring that the church is in decline. We see certainly an age in which the ability of humanity to sin has been greatly exemplified and demonstrated even yesterday. Lord, we praise you that this morning as we Focus again back on Friday afternoon and moving ahead to Sunday morning that we worship you, we celebrate you, we praise you on Sunday morning collectively as a congregation because this is the day that the Lord rose again. So Lord, I pray that you'd give me the words to speak, that they'd be from you. Give us hearts to listen, to obey. Pray that if there's any among us today that do not yet know you as Savior, whether they're listening online or they're in person, that your Spirit would convict them of the truths that we're going to study in the next few moments. They would understand their complete loss, their inability to accomplish or to achieve salvation, to earn eternity spent in heaven. Lord, I pray that instead they would understand, as Scott said a few moments ago, the simplicity, the message, the cross, the resurrection. For it is the power of God unto salvation. That is the gospel. So, Lord, we praise you. We thank you for our time spent in your word. Cause us as believers to be encouraged, strengthened, and renewed as we celebrate your glorious work in the resurrection of Christ. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things, and it is because of Christ that we pray them. And in his name, we say, amen. As we take our time now, we work our way into Matthew chapter 27. Matthew chapter 27, we are still in the crucifixion account, the events that would take place in these last few moments on the cross. This is where we left off on Friday night. We looked into two of these final statements of Christ And then we looked into the examples of the thieves, one on each side of Christ, one who would understand the work of Christ and one who would reject it entirely. This morning we pick back up in the next statements that would have followed that conversation with the believing thief on the cross. And Jesus says this as we come into chapter 27, verses 45 and 46. The events say this, and Jesus speaks a few words here as well. Verse 45 says, Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. You'll notice that our outline is a bit different in your bulletins this morning. If you're taking notes, we have left a blank space for you because we want you to meditate on these themes as we preach through them, as we go through them. We don't want you just to follow along and robotically answer in the the blanks, but instead to dwell upon the thoughts that the Spirit of God provides for you as we work our way through. You'll notice in verse 45, as we deal with the wrath of God, 
that we begin to see its effects on the natural order, on the created order. And we're about to see a petition to God as, as Christ is beginning to go into those last stages of death. But we recognize that in the process, Matthew has recorded for us a timeline of the events that have led up to the final breath of Christ. He says that the time is the ninth hour. And it is the end or the third hour of darkness. Matthew has said that from the sixth hour until the ninth hour there was darkness. And now we're into that ninth hour and as the ninth hour concludes, we're at three o'clock in the afternoon. So from noon to three, there has been darkness in a part of the day that should not have darkness. And we notice as well that this darkness is not a local event. It is not a local phenomenon that is only over Jerusalem. Notice again what Matthew says in verse 45. He says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land. He's not the only gospel writer to record this truth. He says there's darkness over all the land. And at least this would have been all of the Roman world experiencing this phenomenon. Caesar in his palace wonders why it is dark at noon. Some have suggested that this was perhaps a, an eclipse, that it was dark for three hours because of an eclipse, but you and I have experienced an eclipse. We've seen these events take place, and you and I both know they don't last three hours. Some have said that, well, it was more of a local event, but we've already addressed that. So what was it? Scripture doesn't tell us, other than we know it is God who caused it. We, whatever it was, whether it was the moments of the Father's remorse over the events that were unfolding, whether it was God's judgment being poured out on Christ, which I would affirm it was that, but maybe it was more than that. Nonetheless, the darkness breaks as the cry of the Savior's petition to the Father is heard. And this is what Jesus says, verse 46. And about the ninth hour, darkness is about to end. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We start here this morning because without what takes place in this moment, we don't celebrate the resurrection. Without what takes place in this moment, you and I do not celebrate our salvation. Because what takes place in this moment is Christ bearing your guilt. In this moment, the Father's wrath is poured out on Christ. The cry of Christ was spoken and recorded in Aramaic, not in Greek, but in Aramaic. Some have said that the words of Christ's petition were spoken in fulfillment of Psalm 22, verse 1, which indeed Psalm 22, verse 1 says these very words. However, instead of these words being spoken in fulfillment of, or because of, where Christ would be just uttering the Psalms, it would be better to understand it in reverse. 
the psalm was recorded. The psalmist, in agonizing grief, records these words in Psalm 22 as a prophetic anticipation of the Savior's agonizing grief. This was not a mere reciting of a passage. This was the agonizing effect of your sin bearing down on Christ. The work that was done in these moments is the power of the cross. It is why Christ came here. It is why this moment is unfolding before the eyes of those in attendance. Christ hung on the cross bearing the sins of the world. He was dying the death that you and I deserved. Facing the full wrath of God which imputed the guilt of our sins on Him, and He suffered for your sake and for mine. The crucified Christ had endured the sufferings, had endured the beatings, but now the far greater pain than the beatings and the cruel cross was the wrath of God being poured out on Him. These words that Christ speaks, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Were spoken in the agony of the Savior's sacrifice. So it is important for you and I to look into this word forsake. Because there's a lot of misunderstandings, because there's a similarity here, but there is a departure in theology, and we need to understand what takes place in this moment. This has long fascinated me, this phrase of Christ. The word forsake has led some to say that the Father turned His back on Christ. But that cannot be. In fact, we know that it is not. We see what happens immediately. We see the Father's response. We see the Father participating. So what is it that this means? We see that this means that God made Christ to bear the sins of the world. We just sang of it a moment ago. The very God who felt the nails upon His hands. What does it mean that God made Christ to bear the sins of the world? To take the wrath of God? It's important that we understand that Jesus bore His own forsakenness. He and the Father are one. Eternally existing in the Trinity, three in one. But in this moment, rather than turning God's back, the Father's back on Christ, we see the absence of the presence of God. And you and I perhaps have experienced this in a minute detail where it feels as if God's presence is distant from us. That's what it means to be forsaken. The word abandoned has been taken and used further than it actually is for what Matthew is describing here. The absence of the presence of God is intensely felt. But there is no, and listen carefully, there is no rift in the Trinity. Christ did not cease to be God in this moment. He is always God. And He always will be God. That is why we ask the question, who is Jesus? And We studied that on Good Friday and we understood this is an important question. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
If you say that he is any less than God, you are answering it wrong. He is and has always been God. And there is a, an absence of the presence of the Father in this moment. There is a sense of abandonment, but it is not a separation, nor is it a rift in the Trinity. It cannot be. One author writes this, In some mysterious way, during those awful hours on the cross, the Father poured out the full measure of His wrath against sin. And the recipient of that wrath was God's own beloved Son. God was punishing His own Son as if He had committed every wicked deed done by every sinner who would ever believe and ever live. And He did it so that He could forgive and treat those redeemed ones as if they had lived Christ's perfect life of righteousness. Scripture teaches this explicitly. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Beloved, the work that takes place as the wrath of God is poured out upon Christ is the reason we celebrate on Easter morning, on resurrection morning. This event that begins to unfold is what gives to us the surety and the security of our salvation. It is not your works being added to, trying to appease or satisfy some element of the wrath of God, because you cannot satisfy the wrath of God. Isaiah says that every deed that you have done before Christ is as filthy rags. Nothing you do before Christ, before accepting Christ as your Savior, receiving Him, as your Savior, nothing that you do will merit or warrant your salvation. It is truly s- simple. Christ died for you. And He didn't just die, enduring the beatings, the ridicule, the tauntings. He died having bore the wrath that you deserved. talked about this a little bit on Friday night, when we spoke of the propitiation, this is this great big long theological word means that Christ is the satisfier of the wrath of God. Without Christ satisfying the wrath of God, you still must bear it. But Christ took it. And then, Notice what Christ does. This is another significant and important event. And there's actually two statements we're going to look into, but turn over to Luke's Gospel. Luke chapter 23. That is the the first statement that we have looked into. Is this, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We understand this moment. We understand the darkness. We understand the wrath of God being poured out upon Christ. We cannot even begin to fathom the cost of that, the moment of this. But then in Luke 23, verse 46, we find another statement. Luke 23, 46. And the Scripture there says this, one quick verse, as we're going to look into the context in a moment. The Scripture says, Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. This is a declaration of victory. And it comes quickly on the heels. In fact, John tells us in John's Gospel, in chapter 19, verse 30, one word, at least in Greek, one word. In English, it is translated, it is finished. 
and Jesus commits his spirit, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. That is all one statement. The gospel authors have included it in two different places. But we understand that this is a significant statement of Christ. We will consider the resurrection weekend from from Matthew chapter 27, verse 50 in just a moment. But the statement is actually recorded. So this summary statement of the resurrection weekend, this, it is finished, Matthew 27, 50 briefly records, but the statement is actually recorded here. What is it that Jesus said? Luke 23, 46, shortly after the darkness lifted, the wrath of God was fully poured out upon Christ completely. Not any drops of it remaining, the wrath of God poured out on Christ. The most significant two statements are made. Really, it's one. John 19.30, it is finished. And here in Luke chapter 23, verse 46, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. You see, the work that Christ was sent to do on the cross was satisfied, was finished, was complete. Jesus isn't saying that the beatings have been enough. The wrath has been enough. He's saying, it is done. It's finished. The task has been made complete. I want to focus in on the second part. I said we were going to only deal with the second part more. We understand it is finished, and someday, Lord willing, we'll study that in more detail. But I want to focus in on this phrase of Luke. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. The second part of the statement is found here. The statement affirms several elements for us. One, it affirms that there is no rift in the Trinity. Christ cries out again to the Father. This time, not in a petition, but in a statement of victory. A statement of, it has been accomplished. It affirms that the Father had not turned His back from Christ. But it also affirms that Christ offered Himself. Christ offered Himself. There is no other who took the life of Christ. John 10, 17-18 says this, For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up. This charge I have received from my Father. Jesus affirms in John chapter 10 that He is the one who is giving His life. And when He gives His life, He will cause His life to return. If Jesus died, it was because Jesus gave Himself. Since Jesus died, it was because Jesus gave Himself. Jesus died as no other one had and no other one will. Acts 2.23 revealed that the one, on one hand, He was murdered by the crowds. He was murdered by the religious leaders, by the Roman authorities. 
It also reveals to us that the Father sent him to the cross and bruised him there. Isaiah 53.10 says that the Father took delight in crushing Christ because of the iniquities of us all. Yet on the other hand, it is also true that no one took Christ's life. No one took it. And Luke reveals in this statement that Christ gave it. Everything that was true from the tauntings, everything that was true from the mockings, Christ could have done. He could have pulled himself off of the cross and said, now it is done, I've proven my point, and I've paid for sin. But if he would have stopped there, there would be no hope in the resurrection. There'd be no hope for you and I. God would have proven his power and victory over sin and death, but you and I would not be recipients of it. But that is not why Christ went to the cross only. He didn't go only to pay for sin and death. He gave us eternal life as well. Jesus voluntarily gave up his life for you. He knew what he would endure. He knew that the beatings the beatings that were so brutal that we would turn away in, aghast from the violence of it today. He knew that those beatings would be nothing compared to the wrath of God that was poured out upon Him. And yet, He died for you. And He died for me. Christ had fulfilled on behalf of sinners everything that the law of God required of them. Full atonement had been made. Everything the ceremonial law foreshadowed had been accomplished. God's justice was satisfied. The ransom for sin was paid in full. The wages of sin were settled forever. All that remained was for Christ to die so that He might rise again. And therefore, it brings us back to Matthew's Gospel. Resurrection morning. Chapter 28 of Matthew begins with these words, Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. I'm going to stop there because it is interesting, the timing of this. After the burial of Christ on Friday, the Sabbath day, that is Saturday, has passed by without incidents. It's been silent. In fact, it's called today Silent Saturday. Nothing of significance takes place that day. And as Mary and the other Mary, and we know that there was at least Salome and a few others who had joined perhaps this small band of women going to the tomb, the sun hadn't begun to crest, hadn't even begun to come over the horizon. The first rays of sunlight hadn't begun to appear in the eastern sky as it was full-fledged darkness. The women began to make their way to the tomb to finalize the burial. It's fascinating to me that despite everything that Christ had taught, that the women were arriving at the tomb unbelieving. 
They came to finish the anointing process. They came to finish the burial process. It's fascinating to me that the disciples weren't there in anxious anticipation, just waiting. I don't know, I'm, I'm old, this, this commercial is going to date me some, but uh, I remember when there was a JCPenney commercial on TV. You remember that commercial? Good, usually uh, kind of on the Black Friday kind of sales, and there's people pressed up against the window going, open, 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 open. I would have loved for the disciples to have been that. But they weren't. They were hiding. They were still concealed away because they were afraid of what the crowds would do to them. Silent Saturday, all that Christ had taught, they should have been there standing at the tomb, camped out, wanting to be the first in line to see the risen Savior. But alas, they were hiding. At that moment, continue in to the text, verse 2. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. There's seismic activity that takes place. When Christ died, in fact, where we were in Luke just a moment ago, when Christ says that it is finished, I commit my, hand, or commit my spirit into your hands, at that moment there is an earthquake, a seismic event so dramatic that the people would leave the cross mourning and weeping over what had just happened, not because they crucified Christ, but because of fear of what they had just experienced. And now, and Luke also records, by the way, at the time of that earthquake, the curtain, the veil in the temple is torn in two. Access has been granted to the Father because of Christ. And now, Easter morning, before the first rays of sun begin to crest over the horizon, there's another earthquake. Today we might say, oh, well, it was just an aftershock. This was no aftershock. There's a tremendous earthquake. The earth violently shook. And the angel of the Lord, we are told, the angel of the Lord descended and rolled away the stone. This is the only of the gospel accounts that records it in this way. And it's, it's interesting that Matthew gives us the shortest account of the resurrection and the appearances that he would that Christ would have after his resurrection. But Matthew says this, look again in verse 2. He says, "And behold, there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it." We're given a glimpse that the other gospels don't record. The angel rolls the stone away. He rolls the stone away as there is a great earthquake. We're told that the guards, seasoned warriors, killers, melted in fear, not of the earthquake, but of the angel. I want to pull us out for just a moment. If the guards, seasoned killers as they were, melted at the presence of the angel, 
What will they do in the presence of the risen God? What will you do in the presence of the risen Savior? If the angel was enough to cause the guards to faint away in fear and to concoct a story that they're willing to take, because remember, the guards don't go back to the Roman authorities. They're seeking some sort of clemency from the Jewish authorities. They go back to the Jewish authorities and report what they had seen, and the Jewish authorities concoct a story. And that story is sold to the Romans. But if the guards would faint away at the presence of the angel, there is no way that the creator of the angels would not be far more fearsome in his presence. But that is not what Matthew is going after. That's just a rabbit trail that happens in my mind when I study. That is not what Matthew is after in revealing. What he reveals, notice again in the text, he comes, he rolls back the stone, verse 2, and he sits on it. His appearance is like lightning and his clothes white as snow. The guards tremble, verse 4. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, verse 5, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. All of this, the point is made. All of this was not about the angel, but about the tomb. Notice the next words. Verse 6, He is not here. He is risen. Beloved, one of the things that we may falsely believe at this point is that the angel in some way helped Jesus escape from the tomb. And that's, there are those who hold to this idea called a swoon theory, that Jesus was just uh, exhausted by the abuses, that he really wasn't dead, and that he came up from the grave. Well, Jesus isn't in the grave when the stone was rolled away. The grave was already empty. When the angel came, and flicked the stone out of the way, and sat on the stone and said, Do you see him? He's not here. He's gone. He's risen. The point is made that the grave could not hold him. The dramatic earthquake, the fainting of the guards, the angel's appearance in dazzling array was all to demonstrate that Christ didn't need the angel. That just like Christ had given his own life voluntarily for your sake and for mine, he fulfilled the words of John 10 that he would raise it up again. Jesus didn't need the angel. He was already risen. We needed the angel. We needed the stone to be rolled back. Not by the hands of of the guards, not by the women who are trying to finish up the burial process. We needed it in dazzling display. Christ is risen. To the woman, 
to the women, rather, the angel welcomes them. I like this, verse 6 and 7. He says, he is not here, for he is risen. As he said, come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. The statement, the first statement that the angel makes has a little bit of a dig. A little bit of a dig at the unbelief of the women. And a greater dig at the unbelief of the disciples. He says, he is not here for he is risen as he said. He already told you. He already told you that he wouldn't be here. You've come here to seek Jesus, but look, the tomb has no inhabitants. He's risen. J.C. Ryle writes this. He says, We have reason to be very thankful that this wonderful truth of our religion is so clearly and fully proved. It is a striking circumstance that of all of the facts of our Lord's earthly ministry, none are so incontrovertible, uh, incontrovertibly established as the fact that He rose again. The wisdom of God, who knows the unbelief of human nature, has provided a great cloud of witnesses on the subject. Never was there a fact which a friend of God, which the friends of God were so slow to believe as the resurrection of Christ. Never was there a fact which the enemies of God were so anxious to disprove. And yet, in spite of the unbelief of friends and the enmity of foes, the fact was thoroughly established. Its evidences will always appear to be fair to a fair and impartial mind unanswerable. It would be impossible to prove anything in the world if we refuse to believe that Jesus rose again. It takes far less faith to believe in the resurrection of Christ than it does to believe that you are present in this room right now. When we see the events of this morning, we recognize the work of Christ. We know that the Scripture tells us that all three members of the triune God were involved in the resurrection of Christ, but John tells us that Jesus promised that if he lay down his life, he would raise it up again. That is Jesus himself. When the angel flicked away the stone and sat on it in the gla- glamorous display that it was, the glorious display that it was, he was not the focal point. The empty tomb was. And his instruction to the women is, he already told you that he is risen from the dead. The question is before us this morning, how will you respond? What do you say about the empty tomb? And why does it matter? We need not wonder that so much importance is attached to our Lord's resurrection. It is the seal and headstone of the great work of redemption. Which Christ came to do. 
It is the crowning proof that he paid the debt which he undertook to pay on our behalf, that he won the battle which he fought to deliver us from hell and is accepted as our surety by our, and our substitute by our heavenly Father. In other words, God the Father accepts that the wrath of God was satisfied. You and I cannot sing with words that would express such a glorious truth as that. We will spend all eternity focused on that wonderful truth. We recognize that the angels have longed to understand why. As I look into these events. Listen carefully to these last two statements. Every believer's deepest yearning should be this. Philippians 3.10-11 That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death if by any means I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. We studied that passage just weeks ago. It was in our way through the book of Philippians. Every believer's deepest yearnings should be Philippians 3, 10 through 11. And when it is, we agree with the saints of God who have gone on before us as we proclaim, Hallelujah, what a Savior. Every unbeliever's deepest fear is Philippians chapter 2, verse 10. When every knee will bow and every tongue confess that He is Lord to the glory of the Father. If you have not accepted Christ as your Savior, you will, if you end this life without accepting Christ as Savior, you will one day be forced to bow. And if the presence of the angel was fearsome to the soldiers, the presence of the glorious Lord will be all the more fearsome to you and I if you have not believed. And you will be driven to your knees and you will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. You will confess that the work that He said He set out to do is indeed the work He accomplished. So when we ask the question, what do you say about the empty tomb and why does it matter? That is a question of eternal significance. The only way to answer that question properly is to answer into the affirmative, Christ is risen, He is risen indeed. Hallelujah, what a Savior. If you do not yet know Christ as Savior, today is the day of salvation as we celebrate the day of the resurrection. May you come to know Christ, confessing your sins, falling upon your Savior to receive the free gift of salvation. Beloved, we are about to respond. We are about to respond to what we have known as we've come to this passage, what we've understood in years past, and what we have currently studied through, 
I pray that you will lift your voices in authentic and genuine worship. Pure worship before a holy God. As we think of the God who created the wood that he would be crucified on. A God who nurtured through infancy, through conception, through intimacy, all with intimacy all the way through to the point that the men who beat Christ were cared for, loved, and died for. May we be those who worship with authenticness this morning, that Christ would be glorified. Let the redeemed of the Lord proclaim the excellencies with a hallelujah, what a Savior. Let me close our time in the Word in a word of prayer. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we praise You and we thank You for the time that we have spent in Your Word, for the truths that we have studied in these four statements of Christ, these last words of Christ on the cross. Lord, especially these that we have studied this morning remind us of the goodness of your incredible mercy demonstrated for us. We praise you that it wasn't the soldiers who would break the legs of their victims who would be those who would kill Christ. Instead, we recognize that Christ gave it up and that the breaking of legs wasn't even necessary in fulfillment of Scripture, fulfillment of the promises that have been made. We praise you that when they tested Christ, that life had left his body when he determined that it would. We praise you that when the angel rolled back the stone and sat upon it, that there was no body inside the tomb. We praise you for the magnificent display, the glorious display of the angel causing the hearts of these hardened soldiers to melt in fear. But to welcome the ladies in to the tomb, to remind them Jesus had said he wouldn't be there. Lord, for those of us who believe, we shout with an exclamation that fills the halls of this building and beyond, Hallelujah, what a Savior. We know that Christ came to seek and save the lost. And so I pray that if there are any who are lost today, that don't know you as Savior, that they will not leave here today without coming to a saving knowledge of Christ, Him crucified, risen, and coming again. Lord, what a glorious way for us to study these incredible truths. I pray that they would resonate in our hearts and our lives in the weeks and months to come, that our voices would unite together as we sing praises before you. Lord, we love you. We thank you for all of these things. And it is in Christ's name that we pray them. Amen.